Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to the new year in Riverside Friends Church. We're going to be starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark. It's the only gospel we haven't preached on since I've been here. And so now, boom, knocking it out. All right. Uh, starting Mark. I didn't know how to start this sermon. I'm still not totally sure that this is the right way to start it. But, you know, what I want to kind of want to start with is sort of the heaviness of the opening because the opening starts with kind of some like heavy type stuff and so like maybe to begin let's start with a question you ever feel like you're carrying a heavy load like you can't quite manage can't quite cope with what you got going on that you might have a burden not a burden to go and do something but just like a weight that you feel um i do i do i do quite often that's probably one of the worst characteristics that I have, like as a person, um, is that I can often be stressed. And things that don't bother Sarah at all will stress me out. We were maybe slightly joking, slightly real. You know, those jokes that you sometimes tell that are way too real, way too close to home. We were joking. We had one of those this week when our car was breaking down. And I said to Sarah, you know what's going to kill me? It's going to be a heart attack. I'm going to be stressed out and I'm going to have a heart attack and die. She's like, yeah, that sounds right. Probably. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give a little intro for the book of Mark. And then let's dive into what the scriptures say about carrying a heavy load. And so the first and foremost person that I'm preaching to today is me. <clears throat> Go to seminary. One of the things you'll find there and one of the things that you'll often hear inside of a homiletics class or a preaching class or whatever they want to call it, right, is that the first person you preach to is always yourself. Like I can't stand up here and or sit here today and do this unless if I've interacted with this material in a real way. Like I can't give something that I don't have, right? So let's, let's talk about Mark. Mark is a unique gospel. It's likely the first gospel that was written, and it's very unrefined. The whole text of Mark is about 11,000 words and takes about, I don't know, 30 pages inside of our New Testament, depending on what type of Bible you have. It's not very long. And the genre of the gospel is very interesting because Mark is likely the inventor of a brand new genre of text. This is something new that when Mark wrote it, it didn't exist before. This is not history nor is it epic legend, and it's sort of like a biography, but not quite. It's something entirely new, and we call it a gospel because we don't have a better word for it. Its Greek text is told in a very unique way called historic present. It uses present tense verbs to talk about like historic events, and that doesn't translate well into English, and so we end up just using like past tense verbs. So what this means is that in Greek, if you read this, the gospel is told almost in a very fast-paced way. It's just doom, 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 doom. And it feels like you're almost like a part of the story. And it's like, boom, you want to keep going. But the gospel itself, it never says who the author is. None of the gospels list their author. They write anonymously. And perhaps the authors of the gospel saw themselves as be insignificant compared to the subject that deserves full attention 
Jesus Christ. But from church history, we know like the most likely author is John, or excuse me, John Mark. Mark uh, traveled with Peter, and around the time of Peter's death, he's mentioned in like the book of Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 5. I don't remember off my head. Uh, Mark takes what he's heard from Peter and writes it down as this account that we have today. And if you want to know more about that, like we can go in to why we think that's what happened. There's people who disagree and say like, hey, maybe not Mark, whatever. You know, I'm not convinced it was Mark, but also Mark is like the best evidence that we have for it. So I'm good with it being Mark. That's probably what I think happened. But, you know, if it's somebody else, we get better evidence. Okay. I think it's probably Mark though. That's a quick foundation. Like, so Mark, he's not an eyewitness. Mark didn't see this stuff happened, but he writes down what Peter told him. Um, yeah, Peter's likely dying in Rome. Maybe not dying. He's about to be killed in Rome. And Mark is there with him. We know that from like 2 Peter or so, when Peter writes this letter to the churches, 1 Peter, um, 2 Peter. Good thing I'm a good communicator because this is going really well. I keep stumbling over my words. What happens is Peter's in prison and he writes these letters out. And in some of these letters, he talks about Mark being there with him. We know that like this dude named Mark was there with him. And it's likely it seems that the Mark that was there with him heard all that Peter had talked about. And then after, after Mark, after Peter dies, wow. Mark then writes down everything Peter told him about Jesus. Boom, that's it. This is That's a good, quick and foundation for understanding Mark. We're going to explore more of this and see themes through the series. It'll be fun. Uh, let's take a look at the opening 11 verses of Mark. That's what I'm going to cover today. I'm going to cover Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Here's what it says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. So Mark begins this text with a statement that will guide the rest of the book. It's this opening line says the beginning of the good news of about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And the first sentence in Greek is likely only like five or seven words long. There's a note in our pew Bibles that say, hey, the word son of God doesn't appear in some manuscripts. So Mark chapter one, verse one in Greek says, Archetu euangeliu Iesu Christu quiu theu. And what that means is arche beginning to euangeliu, the gospel, Iesu Christu, Jesus Christ, 
Weutheu, son of God. So our NIV doesn't say Jesus Christ, though. As it says in the Greek, our NIV translates, say, Jesus the Messiah. So why does the Greek say Jesus Christ and our NIV say Jesus the Messiah? When we see the words Jesus Christ, we often think of it as a name. Like, right, I'm Robert Radcliffe. That's my name. He's Jesus Christ. That's his name, right? Well, not quite. What if I change my name a little to show what's like happening here? Like in this context, I'm not Robert Radcliffe. I'm Pastor Robert. He's Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name. It's a title. So let's talk about this. What does the name Jesus Christ mean? If this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should understand what this means. Jesus comes from the Greek word Iesus, and comes from, that comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, Yahushua, or as we call it today, Joshua. Yahushua, Joshua, literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of God coming from like the Old Testament. So Jesus literally means God saves. And Christ is also a Greek word from a Hebrew word. It's the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. There's probably a little note in your Bible that says, oh, Messiah or Christ means anointed one. And to be anointed is to take up a holy office. Jesus holds this holy office of Messiah. And we don't know what that means yet. Mark hasn't told us. And this first sentence tells us that this is the beginning of the God saving and the establishment of the anointed one, which we don't know what that means yet, and his office, which we also don't know. There's a few things that we don't know, but it's interesting, right? We know that this is the beginning of the good news. That's what gospel means. This is the good news about God saving. It's interesting. It draws us in. So inside of this first line, inside of this first sentence is a thick richness. Mark uses five words and gives us this like deep theology. My wife wishes I could do the same with just five. I've spent 10 minutes on this opening. I have to cut that out during the actual sermon. Um, this first line lays a foundation for the rest of the book. So let's put this together. Jesus means God saves, and the Messiah means an anointed one who holds in a holy office. So here's what Mark is saying. This is the beginning of how God saves through his anointed one in holy office, Jesus Christ. Have you ever made a cake? Let me just shift gears here. Let me just shift gears here. Have you ever made a cake? You mix flour, sugar, milk, eggs in just about any combination, and you'll end up with a cake batter of some kind. And, you know, you got to have the right ratio for it to be good, but kind of mix any of those together and you'll end up with a cake batter. After you've baked a cake, have you ever tried to separate the flour back out from a cooked cake, from a baked cake? Can't do it. It's enmeshed in its cakiness to the point that it can't be split out. You can't take the flour out of an already baked cake. It's gone through a chemical transformation. If you've never met a cake, if you've never made a cake before, guess what? You can still enjoy cake. If you've never baked a cake, you can still enjoy the cake. You don't have to make it to enjoy it. Here's what I mean. To understand the narrative of the cake, we have to see that the cake comes out of its ingredients. The cake is not a new thing, but it's the culmination of the ingredients that are already there and they've just been mixed together. I'm not talking about cake. I'm talking about Jesus. With this introduction, Mark is 
telling us Jesus is the cake. We don't need to understand like all the ingredients of the cake to enjoy the cake. We can enjoy Jesus just as he is without knowing about this Iesu Christ and the Hebrew and the Greek and the understanding of all that. We don't need that to understand Jesus. We don't need to understand all of Hebrew history and the incredible way that God has been pointing his history through the Old Testament up to this point. But if we know it, it does taste a little bit better. At least to me. There's a lot of Old Testament ingredients inside of this gospel. There's a lot of Old Testament in this gospel. You don't have to know these things to enjoy the cake that is Jesus. But part of my role as a pastor is exposing you to the idea and the ingredients that goes into this cake. And so it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are or what you know about the Old Testament or what you know about Jesus or what you know about anything at all. If this is the first time you've ever been in church, if this is the first sermon you've ever listened to, you're welcome. (laughs) But it doesn't matter, right? This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Son of God is like cake. It's delicious. For all people. You don't need to know the ingredients to enjoy it. But now that you know some of the ingredients, like that Jesus' names means Yahweh saves, and Christ is a title meaning anointed one, and there's this holy office that he's going to take, ooh, I think it almost sets us up to be like, I want more. I want a bit more of this. So let's go on. Verse 2 to 6. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So Mark goes into speaking about this John the Baptist guy. And John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And Mark quotes Isaiah here, but not really. He says he quotes Isaiah, but he's actually quoting Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah all together. But he only mentions Isaiah because you won't find this in Isaiah. You'll find just the last couple of lines in Isaiah. The other stuff you'll find in Exodus and Malachi. But Mark says that this John guy is going to prepare Jesus' way, and make straight paths for him. Let's think about this in the context of the cross. If John the baptizer prepares the way for Jesus, and Jesus ultimately dies on the cross, we have to wonder, did John the Baptist really do a good job? It sounds like he did a poor job. Like, John, you were supposed to prepare the way and make a straight path, and within three years, both John and Jesus are dead. What do we do with that? The straight path for Jesus always leads straight to the cross. The straight path for Jesus always leads straight to the cross. And John, the baptizer, understood this reality. He challenged the people. In verse 4, he says he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's difficult. The word preach here is from the Greek word kariso or kerygma. It's a proclamation. It is not a thought or an idea. These are words spoken aloud for others to hear. And the people, they come out into the wilderness. They come out into the difficult places. They travel from across the country to see John the baptizer. 
And while they are with him, they confess their sins, they pour out their hearts and are baptized. And John preaches repentance. John preaches, come and repent, and the people come and confess. The order's important. John says, repent, and the people confess. What does it mean to repent? What does repentance mean? If you've ever heard this word, you go, yeah, we, we should repent or something. What does that mean? Repentance comes from this like Greek word that literally means to change your mind. It's the Greek words metanoia, if you want to know. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament means to turn around, sub. The Israelites were turned to told were told to turn around and find God. How do we change our mind? How do we turn around and find God? The people hear the preaching of John the Baptist about repentance, and what do they do? They confess their sins. Confession is a critical part of repentance. Oftentimes, I think we misunderstand confession. Because the Greek word for confession is homologeo. And we can break this down into two parts. The first is the root word, logeo, from logos, meaning word. We have this like root word, word. And the prefix is homo, meaning one or the same. So confession is literally one word or the same word. If two people have the same word, they agree. So there's a connection between confession and agreement. So what we could say then is that confession in like the biblical Christian sense is the act of agreeing or having the same word with God about who I am and about who our world is. When I confess and agree with God about myself, then I've turned back to God. I've changed my mind about myself. I've changed the way I think no longer see myself the way I used to, but now I see myself as God sees me. Let me tell a story, right? Let me tell a story. Once there was a man who heard about a treasure in the desert. And so he told his friends and family, I will go and find this treasure. And without hesitation, he packed up his bags and he walked and he walked out into the desert. And he spent days, he spent days wandering through the vast desert in search of this treasure. And he faced harsh winds and scorching heat, and he tirelessly searched. But with each day that passed, he felt his heart and his hope dwindle. And after many weeks, he stumbled over the top of a ridge of a sand dune, and he looked down at an oasis. He rushed down, and in the shimmering water, he saw a worn-out, exhausted man reflecting back at himself. After drinking deeply and washing his face, washing his sand-stained face, he noticed a little worn path off to the side. Tired and exhausted, but with a new sense of excitement, the man strolled down the path up the road, into his front door, and laid down in his comfortable bed. John is preparing a way for Jesus, making a straight path for him. And how many of us have ran off the straight and narrow into a desert that just beats us up? We've made these choices that took us into a desert where life was was scarce and hard and it beat us up. And only by seeing ourselves as we actually are worn out and exhausted and beat up by the desert can we begin to enter into confession with God. 
that it takes us catching a glimpse of ourselves, catching a, a, a glimpse of our reflection in something good that we can truly see how beat up we've become. Thankfully, God has provided us with an oasis where we can drink deeply and return to him. The straight way that Jesus point, puts in front of us will lead us to the cross as well. It'll lead us to confession and repentance. And Jesus, and Mark continues on his introduction about Jesus. He says, verse 7 to 11, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son with whom, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I want to make two points here. The first is on baptism and the second is on heaven. So baptism. As a friend's church historically, Friends have rejected water baptism. We don't baptize people with water because of this verse that John baptizes with water, people baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I've never been baptized with water. I don't see the need. And when I hope like it's apparent from my life that Jesus has baptized me with the Holy Spirit. So traditionally, friends didn't baptize with water. And some friends today have lightened on that issue. And I would say like now that water and baptism, it's helpful for some, but not necessary for all. And so if God leads you to be baptized in water, great, let's do it. Let's get a bunch of your friends together. Let's have a time of confession and testimony where you tell what God's done in your life and I'll dunk you in the river out back. And if God leads you to accept his baptism with the Holy Spirit, that's fantastic. Celebrate that God has changed your life. We do the same thing with communion, right? The bread and juice, they don't matter. They are a physical representation of a reality that exists regardless of if we have bread or juice. And yet for some, the bread and the juice are helpful. So when it's time, come and be helped by the bread and the juice. But remember, ours is a sacramental universe. Every meal is a communion with the Lord. People baptize with water. People do communion this way. But Jesus does it with the Holy Spirit. That's what I have to say about baptism, right? And communion. Let's talk about heaven. Because in this scene, Jesus is baptized in water. And as he is coming up out of the water, heaven is ripped open. And the Holy Spirit comes down out of the rip and lands on Jesus. It's a voice calls out through the tear. This is my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And oftentimes we can think about heaven being like way up there. Like heaven's way up there somewhere. But that's not quite what scripture teaches. We get that idea about heaven being way up there more from like classic Greek influence than our Bible influence. The Epicureans believe that the gods of Rome and Greece, they were so far away. They were way up there. And, and there is so much evil in the world and the gods had to be so far away. And obviously they don't care at all about people. And so this idea from the Epicureans has like influenced our Western understanding of heaven more than the Bible has. Because if you think heaven is up there, that's a thought from Epicureanism. Heaven in our scripture is not up there somewhere. It's on the other side. 
it's separated from our world by a thin veil that is torn open by God, by Yahweh. And in this moment, God from the other side of the veil calls out to God on this side of the veil and says, I love you and you make me glad. And Yahweh tells Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves, that I love you. And I, I know when I, I run the risk of separating God and Jesus and in the Trinity, we know that they are one. And up to this point, we got to ask the question, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done so far in the gospel of Mark? Literally nothing. Jesus has done literally nothing at all. Jesus has just shown up and been dunked in water. And God, Yahweh says, I love you. and You make me glad. Think about it like this. Do you have children? Think back to the first time you held them or the first month of their life. What did you do? You loved them and you held them close. Through a thin, soft blanket, you held them close to yourself. What did that kid do? Nothing. They laid around and they pooped their pants. And you loved them anyways, and there's nothing that you wanted more than to hold them close. And through a thin, soft blanket, God holds us close when we have done nothing at all. God is not distant in a heaven far removed from us, way up there. No, God is on the other side of a soft blanket holding us tightly in his arms. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. His love is constant for you. It is a lot of love. And sometimes kids fight their swaddling clothes and you can fight the love of God, but it is as futile as it is as a tired kid fighting sleep. God wins in the end. So what do we do now? We've seen that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is literally here as a proclamation that Yahweh saves through his anointed one. And this is the beginning of that. And we've seen that repentance and confession is coming into agreement with God about who we are. And now we see that God loves you and he holds you tight to himself, not from a far off heaven, but through a thin veil. And you fought God. You fought God like a baby fighting sleep. You fought God. But it's worse than that. Worse than a baby, though, you know what you do is wrong. You know that you've hurt the people around you, and God sees that too, and God has a word for it. Sin. When we confess, we enter into agreement with God. His word becomes our word. Our confession is, I'm a sinner, and God loves me. Here's what happens in confession. John has prepared a straight path that leads straight to the cross, leads right to the foot of the cross. The straight path leads to the cross, and I go with him. I go with Jesus to the cross. I agree with him, and I confess that I need the cross. I wonder if today you could take a piece of paper out. Take a moment to yourself and write out your confession. Write out how God sees you. Write out the wrong things you've done. Then at the end, write out God loves me. God loves me. When we confess, we enter into agreement with God. His word becomes our word. And our confession is is that I'm a sinner. And God loves me. You can't separate God's love 
away from him, away from you, just like you can't separate flour from a cake. Straight road leads to the cross, and I go with him. Pray that you'll go with him too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to take a moment and just thank you. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. You love us still, and you want you have a goodness for us that is, is really good. So, Lord, would you just help us to embrace it, to lean into it, to enjoy it, to see it as a part of who I, who I want to be? Would you help to break down my own heart, which can be so, so turned against you and so difficult? And I can have these fears and these worries, Lord, and I want to confess that I can often worry too much and I can be stressed out by things that you're in control, that you're in control. And when I'm stressed, I'm not recognizing your sovereignty over the world. Would you help me to see that? And as I confess this to you, would you replace that? Would I just come into agreement with you to say, yeah, I have this. I want to turn it over to you. And would you replace that in my own heart with your deep love? I'm going to pray this in your name.